I'm delighted to be here this morning and bring the word from Proverbs 28:13. If you're following along, we'll hang out there. We'll bring in a couple other passages, but pretty much right there. I do remember we heard Proverbs 26, which is all about the fool. That's the opposite of what we're talking about this morning. That's why we heard that. I remember writing a, one of those Proverbs above my roommate's bed uh, in college as a sluggard turns on its hinges, or as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard rolls over in bed because he never seemed to be able to get up. I don't remember what his response back to me was, but it was a fun interchange we had at a psalm, or Proverbs 26. As we begin, uh, let's just pray for a moment, have some silence, and invite God into this place. God, we know that you are here. You've been with us wherever two or three are gathered in your name. There are you in the midst of them. We pray that this morning that we don't hear my words. We hear your word. We hear it clearly. We thank you for your presence in our lives and the redemption of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I was reflecting on this uh, passage of scripture this week um, and this whole series, this new series we're in, um, I was thinking about a few years ago, I preached, and didn't, we didn't get deep into it, but I preached uh, from Deuteronomy 27 about uh, when the Israelites are entering the promised land, they're hearing the law for the second time. That's hence Deuteronomy, second telling of the law. And when they get into the land, they're supposed to set up altars uh, on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Uh, names, if you don't read Deuteronomy 27, we otherwise would probably ignore and uh, what they're, what's supposed to happen is that from Mount Ebal, uh, the priests and Moses are supposed to call down curses, and on Mount Gerizim, they're supposed to call down blessings, just like we hear the wise and the fool. We heard the fool part this morning of Proverbs 26. Not that they're cursing Israel, but it's a warning. If you walk in obedience with God, the blessings that you hear are what you'll experience. If you walk in disobedience with God, the curses that you hear are the consequence of that. This is a reminder as you enter the land not to disobey. And it's the constant reminder in Scripture that obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. Those are the ultimate results. That godly living leads to life. And that the pursuit of self against God, which is sin by very definition, leads to death. And it's, it's, I think it proves itself over and over that the more we per- pursue our self and our self-interests over against anything else uh, we might desire in this life and over against what God wants out of us, the more we pursue filling ourself alone, the less satisfied we are with every answer we find. We search more and more and more to fill something that only God can fill, and we find less and less each time. It might feel like success temporarily, but ultimately it's the path leading to death. And once we realize that, once we realize that that we are walking in a path of disobedience, and we all do it in small ways and in big ways, I do it, you do it, everybody does it, then the proper response to that, once we recognize those areas where we're walking in disobedience, is then to confess to confess to God. And so as we walk through this series that we're in, we have the issue of uh, confession and forgiveness put together. 
And you can read it in your bulletin. You can read it on version if you're following that way. However you're following, you can see what, what it says. When we confess, God can begin to do a new work in us. Because otherwise we're held back. What, what will God do when we hand over the regrets, grievances, and grudges of the past, of the sin that we hold on to, that's harbored within us? When we confess, God forgives. And God trains us to forgive. And in forgiveness, we find freedom. We find freedom to do what God has called us to do. So you can see a progression of confession to forgiveness to freedom. That's there. As we walk through the sermon series, when we get to the the final stage of this particular one, because we've been taking some time of concerted uh, talking about the next stage of ministry at First Covenant and vision, those sorts of things, and, and assessing things. We should recognize, first of all, that assessment is normal and natural in a healthy organization. Uh, that's a good thing. But we're going to have time during the sermon series to have moments of private confession, moments where we can uh, uh, have public confession. And on the last Sunday of the sermon series, which is the 11th of November, we're going to take a little time to publicly consecrate just this next phase of mission at First Covenant. Nothing invalidates the past. It just says, God, what have you called us to in the future? And so I want to talk to you. There are four biblical principles that we will uh, use within that service, and they're in your bulletin. I want to just state them all right now, and you'll hear them throughout the sermon series in one way or another. But the first biblical principle that we'll be able to kind of consecrate uh, together and confess together is that moving forward into God's future begins with redemptive theology, repentance, and prayer. It does not begin with structures, strategies, or systems, but with people who are broken before God who redeems all things for good. The second biblical principle we'll hear and be able to confess and consecrate together is that every church is in a constant need of renewal, regardless of its current state of health. The third biblical principle is that to move forward, a church must be centered in the mission and message of Jesus. We need to do something so we don't decline as vastly different from a renewed sense of mission flowing from the heart of Jesus. And the fourth principle, which would be what probably relates most to today's message, is that a church must invest in and take responsibility for joining with God in moving forward. That's where I think confession links up very easily with with these principles. These principles, by the way, have been used by other covenant churches in the same thing. Just when you get to, to new chapters and new moments, you just consecrate those moments. It's something that should happen regularly within the life of a church. So let's turn to our text this morning. We're talking about living wise and free. Proverbs 28, 13. And I do encourage you to read verse 14 later today because they do connect. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. What happens then when we hold on to sin? The text tells us one thing right away. We don't find mercy. And I think we can recognize that when we don't find mercy, we're not as willing to give it either. And we live in a society that I think has walked quite away from the grace that God would give and extending grace 
So we can experience that in the world around us. When we don't experience mercy, we're not inclined to give it. Second thing I think that happens when we, don't, when we hold on to sin and conceal it is that we hide ourselves from God. There's no way that we can truly be obedient to God when we're concealing sin. That doesn't mean God can't use somebody to fulfill his will. We could point out someone like Pharaoh in the Exodus. God clearly uses him with a very hardened heart. But when we conceal that, we can't be obedient to God and God's will. And the third thing is, when we withhold or conceal that sin, we hide our true nature from ourselves. We don't really know who we are when we do that. And so we can hear something like 1 John 1, 6 through 9, which is more or less a commentary on our proverb this morning. It says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One thing we could recognize, there's an image that will come up here. Some of you that are into psychology will recognize this thing called Johari's window. Um, I find it useful to reflect on every so often. Uh, but you can see that when we talk about knowing ourselves, um, there are sort of four quadrants that this thing lines us up in. We can know ourselves, and there's sort of a public me or a public you that other people can see. And so... There are things that I know about myself, and there are things that you know about me, because we can see those publicly. They're, they're revealed. There are things that I could know about myself that you don't know, and vice versa, because we just don't give every thought, thankfully, that comes into our head, right? We don't know everybody's feelings all the time, and everybody's likes and dislikes. Sometimes we hold those in. There are parts about us that other people might see that we have no idea about. Maybe those are as simple as annoying habits that we have that annoy others. They could be deeper. And then, of course, there are things that other people don't know about us, and we don't know about ourselves. So you get all this kind of stuff going on. But one thing we, could, we should recognize is God knows all of this information. None of this is hidden from God. When we don't know our true selves, when we hide that sin, we're actually trying to hide ourselves from God and our real true selves. But the truth of the matter is that there's no way we can know ourselves apart from God who already knows us and has called us to his presence to be who we truly are. When we act as if we don't know God, when we're, when we're lost in that sin concealed, then we're actually trapped in a prison of sin, whether we realize it or not, whether other people see it or not. The bottom line in all of this is, when we conceal sin, we don't flourish as God intended us to flourish. We already begin to experience death and not life as God intended. 
I came across a quote this week from 1926. Things haven't changed that much. Points out the very same thing about concealing sin. It says, the fact is human nature was not constructed to harbor evil. When we let it reside in there, it eats at us and gnaws at us and works death in us, not life. So if we're honest about it, what we see in the proverb is that confession is the first step to freedom. Confession is the pathway which we take to experience wholeness in life as God intended. We see that in the biblical principle we pointed out this morning, number four, that a church must invest in and take responsibility for joining with God in moving forward. We can't do that unless even on an individual level we confess and we're certainly not going to do that at a corporate level if we don't acknowledge those things that keep us from flourishing as God intended. There are two reasons that I think churches, if we take more broadly the perspective of churches looking at this principle, would fail to, to enter into this. One is that we don't regularly assess what it is we're supposed to do and, and what God has called us our primary calling to assess what ministries we should and shouldn't do, just as we've tried to do over the past few weeks in Sunday school and that sort of thing, to listen to where the Holy Spirit is speaking and where there are common mission that God has called us to. The other thing, though, is unresolved sin that would hold a church back in these cases. And we can't see past our own mess sometimes in those moments. Proverbs 28, 13 says if we hold that back, we're not going to experience the fullness God has for us. So on an individual level this morning, the implication of this is that as individuals, it's important that we go before God and confess. I want to read a story from Richard Foster. He has a chapter on confession in his well-known book, Celebration of Discipline. It's a good short, good moment in his life. He's talking about confessing to another. And he, he's speaking of the, more broadly of confession itself, and he says this. Although I had read in the Bible about the ministry of confession in the Christian brotherhood, I had never experienced it until I was pastoring my first church. I did not take the difficult step of laying bare my inner life to another out of any deep burden or sense of sin. I did not feel there was anything wrong in the least except one thing. I longed for more power to do the work of God. I felt inadequate to deal with many of the desperate needs that confronted me. There had to be more spiritual resources than I was experiencing, and I'd had all the Holy Spirit experiences you're supposed to have. You name them, I'd had them. Lord, I prayed, is there any more you want to bring into my life? I want to be conquered and ruled by you. If there's anything blocking the flow of your power, reveal it to me. He did. Not by an audible voice or even through any human voice, but simply by a growing impression that perhaps something in my past was impeding the flow of his life. So I devised a plan. I divided my life into three periods, childhood, adolescence, adulthood. On the first day, I came before God in prayer and meditation, pencil and paper in hand, 
inviting him to reveal to me anything during my childhood that needed either forgiveness or healing or both. I waited in absolute silence for some 10 minutes. Anything about my childhood that surfaced to my conscious mind, I wrote down. I made no attempt to analyze the items or put any value judgment on them. My assurance was that God would reveal anything that needed his healing touch. Having finished, I put the pencil and paper down for the day. The next day, I went through the same exercise for my adolescent years and the third day for my adult years. Paper in hand, I then went to a dear brother in Christ. I had made arrangements with him a week ahead so he understood the purpose of our meeting. Slowly, sometimes painfully, I read my sheet, adding only those comments necessary to make the sin clear. When I had finished, I began to, or began to return the paper to my briefcase. Wisely, my counselor confessor gently stopped my hand and took the sheet of paper. Without a word, he took a wastebasket, and as I watched, he tore the paper into hundreds of tiny pieces and dropped them into it. That powerful nonverbal expression of forgiveness was followed by a simple absolution. My sins, I knew, were as far away as the east is from the west. The proverb tells us to confess. A couple implications I see, and you see the result from Foster here. There's all of a sudden freedom when you name the sin and release. You and I need to do our best to consider all the ways that we've wronged God if we're going to live in and be those who confess and flourish as God intended. We need to make confession not just a grand thing, perhaps like Foster did here, but to make it a daily routine, something that we do regularly. I know I do it before each worship service. I do it every morning. When I wake up, I've built it into my morning routine to make confession a daily practice so that I would call upon the Lord and do my best to clear the slate and also hear God for where those things might be hidden that I don't know about. I do it every morning when I shower, because that's something I do every day, thanks be to God. And I do it every morning when I shower using an old prayer practice called the Kyrie. I've told many of you about it before, where I just pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, over and over. Not to empty my mind, to fill my mind with the things of God, and to start that process for the day. The third thing is we need to make sure that as we confess that it's done not so that we can kind of do sort of what I call Al Capone theology to confess so that we can just do it again. To confess to do whatever we want. We can just do it again next week. But to confess to be obedient. So that in that freedom we're free to do God's will. Not to do our will again. We're free to be God's and flourish as God intended, knowing our true selves in God when we confess. The purpose is not just to make it clear, to make a mess again. The purpose is to have communion with God. That's what we're doing when we confess. Confession is the path to freedom. I want to take time to to allow us to just have a little space to confess. I'm going to invite the band forward.
so they can get in place. And I'm going to draw your attention while they come up. In the, I've given you a tool in your bulletin. This is just a simple prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It's in the insert in there. I'm going to use it today as we close out in prayer. Just because the words are written on the page doesn't make them any less in, or sincere. Perhaps they prompt us to find other areas where we can confess. But we're going to start with just a little bit of silence before the Lord. Then I'll read this as our prayer of confession. Lord, we're lost without you. There are things that we hold back from you. I hold them back. We hold them back. Help us be free to confess. Hear these words as our confession to you, Father. We come to you in sorrow for our sins, for turning away from you and ignoring your will for our lives. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us for behaving just as we wish without thinking of you. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us. For failing you by what we do and think and say. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us. For letting ourselves be drawn away from you by temptations in the world about us. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us. For living as if we were ashamed to belong to your Son. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us. Father, we commit this prayer of confession to you that we would indeed find forgiveness through your Son, Jesus, and find freedom so we can celebrate new life in you. Amen.